Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, We've started on our anxiety and depression massive literature overview. So the goal here is to create a low or no-cost resource for people suffering from anxiety and depression or people that know people that do. Uh, to find out more about the effort, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today my guest is uh, Dr. Scott Schur. Uh, he's an independent provider of uh, hyperbaric medicine, and I'm going to talk to him about what he does. Uh, he, he lectures and, I guess, you know, promotes uh, hyperbaric medicine, uh, at least in the United States and possibly worldwide. So, Scott, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Rich. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so tell me about, uh, you know, your background. How did you first become aware of uh, hyperbaric oxygen and and how did you get into it at the beginning? Yeah, so I grew up the son of a chiropractor, so pretty out of the box overall. And I was always looking for modalities as I decided to go to medical school, crazily enough, after being the son of a chiropractor. But I, I really felt that there may be a way for me be, to be able to kind of combine the alternative and the conventional world into some sort of practice. It was a pretty high-minded idea for like an 18 or 20 year old at the time. And so when I went to medical school, I I was looking for a way to kind of find a practice or a path to practice that allowed me to, to kind of do both, to kind of bridge that chasm. And I found it in, in a very unusual place in a trauma center in Baltimore, where I trained, there's a place called shock trauma. They have a very large hyperbaric facility in the basement that they were using for a trauma for wounds and for serious infections and seeing some fantastic benefit. And I realized that this technology, after I went home and did some studying on it, was being used across the world for healing, recovery, optimization, for synergizing with other types of therapies across the world. In the U.S., it was approved for 14 indications, but in places like Russia and China, Japan, they were using it for 70 or 80 different things. And so the research was uh, pretty gigantic, actually, outside the U.S. and growing in the U.S. And so I found that there was a niche there for me because it was a way for me to 
stay within sort of the conventional box on some level and, and use my knowledge and my expertise. And, and I ended up getting trained in internal medicine and I still work part-time in the hospital as a hospitalist physician. And so I'm using my acute care training and understanding the acute aspects of hyperbaric therapy, although I don't practice that very much. My most, mostly my focus on the hyperbaric side is on the, what's called the off-label world, the things that are not covered by insurance, but there's significant data to potentially implement them in various treatment strategies and various treatment modality combinations, I would say. And so I've been very interested in hyperbaric therapy from an integrated perspective. And that's the practice that I've developed over the last five or so years is that it really my practice is hyperbaric therapy at its face, but really underneath it, it's about what, what are you doing before, during, and after hyperbaric therapy to really optimize your experience within the chambers and what are their uh, allied professionals, what other technologies, what other tools can be used to really comprehensively help people. All right. Well, first of all, uh, how does hyperbaric oxygen work and what, what uh, indications is it used for? So hyperbaric therapy is used uh, for a number of indications. It all comes down to the basic physiology of it. So we're combi- combining two different things. We're combining increased atmospheric pressure with increased inspired oxygen. So start with the pressure first. We're simulating the pressure you would feel under a certain amount of seawater. Water is extremely heavy, and it's that heaviness that we can simulate inside of a hyperbaric environment. And we can go to very, very deep pressures. Uh, 33 feet below the sea is a very common pressure that we use. It's called 2ATA. And oftentimes, we don't go any deeper than about uh, 66 feet of seawater, which is three atmospheres of pressure, except for very specific reasons. So that's the pressure. And then there, we increase the inspired oxygen that you breathe as well. So oxygen in the air that you're breathing now typically is 21% of the air. Okay, if you're at sea level, if you're like me in Colorado, it's about 17% of the air that you're breathing currently. And then most of that oxygen is carried on red blood cells. Uh, There is also this liquid of your blood, the plasma has very little oxygen in it at sea level. Okay, and so we can increase our oxygen carrying capacity really only a a few ways. The, The most common way is by increasing the number of red blood cells in circulation. The number of red blood cells increase, the number of oxygen carrying sites increases in the body. The only ways to do that legally really are to go to a place like Colorado and go training. And if you go altitude training, hypoxic training, or low oxygen training, your body will create a stimulus to make more red blood cells to carry more oxygen. But there's another way to increase the amount of oxygen in circulation. And that is by adding pressure because the combination of increased inspired oxygen with that increased atmospheric pressure that I mentioned just a minute ago is that you can drive more oxygen into circulation, not only on the red blood cells, but also in the plasma or the liquid of your blood at the same time. And then as a result of all that oxygen getting in circulation, you have an acute infusion of oxygen of up to 1200% more than the body can typically do on its own. And then you have a long-term benefit of that oxygen infusion protocol. Really what happens immediately and over the long-term can be kind of nailed down into like a couple different categories. The first one is it, number one, we reverse hypoxia. We, re- we reverse low oxygen state. You do that immediately by driving a lot of oxygen in circulation. And you do that in the long-term by creating new blood vessels in these areas uh, that need more blood vasculature for whatever reason. And there's lots of different examples of these things. The second thing that happens is that you're decreasing inflammation and swelling. You're doing that immediately by actually constricting down blood vessels a little a little bit and helping with anything that might be injured. And over the long-term by actually down-regulating a lot of inflammatory pathways that are responsible for inflammation. There's also the immediate release of exponential numbers of stem cells. And the stem cells, as we all know, or most of us know, that can go to various areas of the body and regenerate them. 
Um, they're also killing bugs. We kill bugs by, high, especially bugs that do not like high oxygen environments. And we're also causing a, a pressurization of the blood vessels and lymphatics that helps with blood flow to tissues and lymphatic, lymphatic flow out of tissue. So with detoxification. So you have this acute infusion of oxygen and then the, the long-term benefits of the oxygen infusion protocol and the oxygen infusion protocol, uh, long-term benefits are really related to epigenetic shifts that are happening at the DNA level of various genes that are being expressed or suppressed uh, because of the oxygen exposure. And when someone undergoes hyperbaric oxygen, you know, they're breathing in not only a higher percentage of oxygen, but it's under pressure, one, two, three atmospheres. Correct. And this, what, like supersaturates all their tissues with oxygen? Correct. Yes, it supersaturates their tissues with oxygen because there's going to be more of a stimulus for the oxygen to reach further outside of blood vessels. Exactly. Is there any downside to doing this? Like are any, you know, oxygen radicals created that can hurt tissue or on balance, is it more of a positive effect? So it's a good question. Because you have more oxygen circulation, you are going to make more reactive oxygen species. And so this is actually a signaling mechanism for your DNA to express genes that are responsible for growth and decreasing inflammation. And some of the work that we see that happens with oxygen infusion protocols. In the beginning, though, there is more of an imbalance between oxidative load versus antioxidant capacity. But over about three treatments, and uh, Dr. Diagostino and others have shown this in papers, that after about three treatments, the antioxidant response of the oxidant load is about matched to the oxidative load. And so it's about balanced out for most people. But it's important to know, if possible, what your oxidative stress levels are or what your antioxidant reserve is really before you get into a hyperbaric environment. And also to factor that, factor that in into the various protocols. And the brain is more sensitive to oxidative stress. And so we think about various ways of protecting the brain if we are going to be going to deeper pressures, for example, for like a cancer synergy treatment protocol. For so example. is there, um, should there be a ramp up the first time you do it? Maybe not as high pressure, not as much oxygen, and then slowly ramp over the three treatments? Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. It depends on the person. We really do actually want that oxidative stress uh, for most people to start creating that epigenetic shift on the DNA level. Okay, so it's not a bad thing. However, in people that we are worried about oxidative stress for whatever reason, um, then certainly ramp-ups are, are, are things to consider. Yeah. So you mentioned there's a bunch of uh, indications that it can be used for, but there's a lot of, I mean, dozens and dozens of, I guess, at least U.S. off-label applications. So right. what are some of the main ones and then what are some of the more unusual ones? Okay. You want to give me, I'll give you some zebras too. I like that. Like scorpion bites, for example, that's a zebra for you. That's oh. not a very common one, but that actually is covered by medical insurance. And so there is 14 indications that are covered by medical insurance. The most common ones are patients with diabetic foot ulcers that are non-healing in patients. And actually with diabetes and diabetics, I've saved many, many patients 
over the years from getting amputations or save them from another one, unfortunately. The next category is patients that have had radiation treatment for cancer and have had radiation injuries developed that have lasted or have developed after six months. And those patients are fantastically sensitive to hyperbaric therapy. They do very, very well. Uh, unfortunately, vastly underutilized, even in the U.S., uh, where uh, we have lots of patients with radiation injury, um, even though radiation's gotten better over the years. The third one that's, uh, that's common that we see uh, that's covered by insurance is chronic bone infection. So osteomyelitis is it's called. And so because hyperbaric therapy can penetrate bone and, and usually in combination with antibiotic therapy. There is also in plastic surgery, if there's compromised flaps and grafts, uh, for example, if you've got grafted tissue, you've had like a reconstruction of some sort and the tissue's not looking good, hyperbaric therapy can be very helpful. Um, in addition, on the, on the insurance side, you have a lot of the acute things like acute trauma to uh, like acute limb trauma, like a partial amputation, uh, burns, zebra here, cyanide poisoning, scorpion bites, forgetting a number of other ones, necrotizing fasciitis, which is a flesh-eating bacteria. And then the other category, which is the off-label indications, which are not covered in the U.S., but in some countries they are, are things like using it in, in uh, for reflex, reflex sympathetic dystrophy or chronic pain syndromes, stroke, traumatic brain injury, even in the dementias, dementias, we're using it more like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, Lyme disease, performance, athletic performance, athletic recovery, injury recovery, surgery recovery, so surgical recovery as well, some fantastic improvements in surgical recovery uh, from anyone from getting like a hip replacement to somebody that's an athlete getting a Tommy John surgery. And yeah, those are some of the, the major ones we're doing, regenerative medicine, so combining it with things like PRP and stem cells and other types of regenerative projects as well. Yeah, that's a ton of indications. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some of the optimization. I think I remember talking to Don D'Agostino and he said, you know, fasting or a ketogenic diet before and through the hyperbaric oxygen seemed to boost it. But what are some of the improvements that you found? Right. So there's a couple of different ways we're using the ketogenic diet inside of a hyperbaric environment. So one of them is for cancer in combination with things like IV vitamin C and, and the ketogenic diet and hyperbaric therapy, there seem to be potential synergistic sort of press pulse ideas here. And this is from Dom, Dom's work and Tom Seafried's work as well. And so we have patients that are coming in uh, using that protocol as well with significant improvements and stabilization of, of various types of cancer. Uh, we do a lot of glioblastoma as well. And this is from a lot of Dom's research as well. Uh, we're also using ketogenic diets or ketones in general in patients with dementia or with concussion as well. Anytime you want to protect the brain from oxidative stress, Rich, it's a really good way to do that. So whether it's nutritional ketosis or exogenous ketones, certainly things that we can add in. And then, I mean, there's a lot of other things on the wellness side, other types of interventions, if that's what you're asking as well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, well, you, again, you mentioned optimization. So yeah. beyond ketogenic diet, or I mean, let's talk about that first. So ketogenic diet and or fasting, what is it boosting and how? Well, we think the major thing that the ketone, ketogenic diet is doing is protecting the body from oxidative stress. And then it may have some blood flow enhancement capabilities as well. Dom or one of his allied researchers did some work on wound healing on ketosis and that in ketosis, you're tending to have more blood flow to the wounds. And that would actually pretend pretty well if you're uh, if you're getting hyperbaric therapy and getting more oxygen in that blood flow as well. So we think there might be something to that. Uh, but the optimization piece is really big, Rich, and I'm glad you mentioned it because for me, I often 
tell people that they shouldn't get into a chamber right away, especially if it's not an acute indication, if it's not like an immediate need to get into the chamber, because if you can optimize your vitamins, minerals, nutrients, your gut health, your hormonal health, if you can optimize your lifestyle, if you can do work to understand what allied professionals or technologies or practices might be helpful for you, it's going to really up-level your treatment protocol outcomes. And I've seen this time and time again. It's like, if you're just eating McDonald's and smoking cigarettes every day and think hyperbaric therapy is going to help you, it's not going to help you very much. If it's going to help you, it's going to help you for a short period only. And then you're going to kind of go back to the way you were before. And I have my, there's a very large research center in Israel at the Asaf Harafei Hospital in Tel Aviv, where they actually did a study on longevity, looking at how hyperbaric therapy can improve metrics of health, looking at blood flow in the brain, looking at blood flow in the heart, even in the genital region and seeing improvements in blood vascularization and blood density in these areas. Uh, They also looked at uh, telomere length and they looked at senescent cell populations, which are these like zombie looking cells or zombie type cells is what they call them in the body that don't divide and are associated with cancer and inflammation and how a chamber protocol improved markers of senescent cells, uh, basically made them go away to a significant degree, about 30% less and also improved or increased telomere length. And in this particular study, they didn't look at any dietary changes. They didn't look at any lifestyle changes. So the question I always have is, you know, what is the longevity of the longevity protocol? How long does it last actually that you stay with these improvements? And obviously I think the more that you can do in your life on a day-to-day level uh, to optimize your health, the better you're going to end up and the more sustainable the results are going to be. Well, it makes sense that the better health you're in diet-wise and otherwise the better this therapy will work. But again, clinically, if someone's doing all the right things, what have you observed versus someone that you know qualifies for the treatment is doing pretty good, but it's not optimizing? So it depends on the indication. If it's an acute indication, so if it's something like you got some trauma yesterday, you had an injury yesterday, you get into the chamber, both of those two people will do almost as well as each other. However, if you take those two people and you put them on a longevity protocol and you see how well they do, it's, there's going to be a significant drop-off in the person that's not you know, optimizing their health. And then the sustainability of the results over time will drop off faster in those that have not really taken a, an approach that's more integrative or holistic, whatever you want to call it. Well, so I know it depends on indication, but how many treatments and with what frequency and intensity is, is typical if there is such a thing? Yeah, yeah. So there's the way I, I, I break it up is there's the, there's the acute indications and there's the more long-term chronic conditions, long-term goals, let's let's call them. Acute conditions don't take more than typically between three and 10 sessions to see a significant acceleration in the healing process, recovery process. And then oh, the longer protocols are anywhere between 20 to 120 sessions, depending on the, the indication. So a good example would be like a, an acute versus chronic concussion, for example. So somebody comes in with an acute traumatic brain injury, two to three sessions can do a significant, significant, it could be significant to help them heal faster as opposed to if they had come in with a chronic concussion that's been going on three months or longer, it's going to take them 20, 30, sometimes 40 sessions to see significant improvement. And so, and then the other delineation is time, like you said. So typically you're in the chamber for about 60 to 90 minutes at a time. And it depends on the indication. If it's a more of a neurologic indication, you're typically in there less time, like 60 minutes, for example, and more of a systemic indication, it's going to be more time, like 90 minutes at a time, for example. So, and then the final delineation of that is the, the type of chamber to use. There are various different types of chambers on the market. There are soft chambers or mild units that go to mild pressures, about 
12 feet of seawater equivalent, which is what 1.3 atmosphere is a mild unit that you can get in your house. And then there's chambers that are medical grade. They can go to two atmospheres, 2.4 atmospheres, three atmospheres, depending on the type of chamber. I've yeah. done you know, the soft ones where it's like 1.3 or maybe one and a half. Are they effective at all? Or is it just kind of like a, I don't know, it doesn't do much for you. Do you have to go up to higher pressures in order for it to work? So for neurologic indications, the sensitivity from a pressure perspective seems to be somewhere between 1.3 and 2.0. For more systemic related indications or outside of the central nervous system, it's about 1.75 and below. And so there's a bit of a crossover, but I do think that the mild pressures, the soft units can be beneficial for neurocognitive optimization. I do think that the deeper pressure, like the 1.3 versus the 1.5, people that go to 1.5 tend to get better faster than people at 1.3. But in the end, if you do the chamber enough at 1.3 or do it more, like 20% more, you can get the same results. Now that's not the same thing to say that like if it's a systemic indication, like if it's um like let's let's say that's, that's a good indication. Like if you have like a, a knee injury, for example, and you have doing more sessions in a mild chamber does not is not equivalent to doing less sessions in a hard chamber because all that oxygen that's being infused in the body gets further outside of the blood vessel uh, because there's more oxygen related to the pressure inside the blood vessel. So there's there's some crossover when it when it comes to using the 1.3 versus 1.5. I would say, as far as outcomes and results, but there's not as much between 1.3 and 2.4 for an indication that would do better at 2.4, for example. Yeah, I was, that's what I was wondering is why does the higher pressure make it more effective? What, what's going on physically that, that, that's happening? It's, it's simply that you're getting more oxygen diffusing outside of blood vessels and further into tissues. And the brain is more sensitive to oxygen and pressure, so it doesn't require as much to get it's beneficial effect. In fact, you can get, if you have too much pressure, it could be detrimental to the brain as well and cause too much oxidative stress. And so it's something that we consider as well when we're giving people deeper pressure treatments, we have to be thinking about, you know, are we protecting their brain as well? I gotcha. It makes sense. And I guess, cause you know, this is all headed towards homeostasis. Maybe that's why even at lower pressures, if you do it longer, it still works. Maybe not as well, but it works. It certainly works for neurologic indications. Um, but it, it doesn't seem to work as well for things outside the brain and the spinal cord. Uh, I, I mean, of course, I have seen people heal up things outside of the brain and central nervous system in a, in a mild chamber, whether it be like, let's call it wrist tendonitis or a toe infection or an ulcer that's relatively on the mild side. I have seen the mild units help with those on occasion, but it's not my go-to. Typically, we really want to go deeper outside the central nervous system if we can. Now, the other caveat to that would be if, if it's more for like optimization purposes and you're combining it with other therapies that are improving blood flow, say you have lights or sauna or uh, pulse electromagnetic field technology, or you're using the supplements that are helping with, with blood flow optimization, there certainly is an argument that the mild chambers can help or could potential, potentially be modulated to be you know, using them like you were using a heart chamber. But I think that the jury is still out on that completely at this point. Yeah, when I went to go do it, they took my blood pressure and then inside the chamber, it got really hot um, and claustrophobic. Is there anything people are doing to counteract those things and why blood pressure? Why did they have to check it? Yeah, so your blood pressure will go up slightly in the chamber, depending on the type of chamber that you're using. The deeper pressure is going to increase your systolic level about 10 points. 
So if you have high blood pressure, you really do want to make sure that you're getting your blood pressures checked before you go into the chamber that, so that you don't have, uh, usually the cutoff is 160 over 100 uh, for not going into the chamber, uh, for example. You don't, I mean, this kind of goes into the, the questions about risks and about potential side effects and, and claustrophobia is a big one. So if you are claustrophobic, um, it is an enclosed environment. Most people with claustrophobia, unless it's severe, can get through it. Um, but the people that, that are most severe may not be able to, depending on the type of unit. As far as the temperature in the chamber, it just depends on how the chamber is set up and kind of what chamber you're in. But every chamber will get warmer as you kind of pressurize because of physics laws, PV equals NRT, if you remember that one. Um, and then there is, uh, then it gets cooler on the way back up kind of thing because of the pressure and temperature relationship. So, um, and then there are other things to consider. You want to make sure people have normal lungs. Uh, they don't have a history of, you know, requiring oxygen or if they have severe asthma that's uncontrolled. Uh, you want to make sure they don't have any severe cardiovascular disease. They have a normal heart or at least a not very reduced ejection fraction uh, per beat. And uh, if those are the major things, you want to make sure the normal heart, normal lungs. And then if you have a seizure disorder, that's controlled because at deeper pressures, the oxidative stress does put you at a risk for developing oxygen-induced seizures. But those are those are very rare. Well, so over a protocol of 20 plus sessions, what, what's been observed clinically? Like after the first couple and after 15, after 20, let's say. Depends on what the protocol is for, but let's let's call it like a concussion, uh, for example. Um, and I can use like a, another one if you'd like, but a concussion would be typically you'd start, the first couple of treatments tend to be very motivating for, I'd say about 50% of people because they start feeling this rush of oxygen in their brain. They start feeling like maybe like clouds have finally parted, the fog is lifted, whatever analogy you'd like to use. Then the brain does the hard work of actually trying to heal itself. And then after about 15 or 20 treatments in, you start seeing significant improvements on a relatively day-to-day basis, I would say. Because that's really where treatment 20 is around where you have sort of maximum amount of angiogenesis or new blood vascular density that's now in place. And so with more vascular density, you're going to get more oxygen to tissue more regularly, even outside, even outside of a hyperbaric environment, for example. And how, how frequently should be the, should be the treatments once a week, more or less? So usually the protocols are done daily, five days on two days off for the treatment protocol. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, one exception would be if it's kind of one-off for things like muscle recovery or jet lag, or but for the most part, it's usually the treatment days are done in succession. The, the other exception would be potentially in cancer synergy. Sometimes we'll use two or three days a week, sometimes four days a week of hyperbaric therapy, but maybe not every day, for example. But overall, they usually are five days a week on, two days off. And for some protocols, we can even do two sessions in the same day, depending on what the indication is. So if I have a map of the U.S. states, um, is this available in all states? Or there's certain aspects of it that are or certain indications in some states and not others? So every state has a medical hyperbaric facility so that they have a place where you can get treated for one of the 14 indications that are covered by insurance. Almost every state has independent providers of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which means that they may be seeing patients that take that and they may be taking insurance or they may not be taking any insurance at all and they may just be seeing all the non-insurance or off-label hyperbaric indications at their facilities but for the most part there is a clinic in, in almost every state i've spoken to somebody at least in almost every state over the years i think 
there's probably one state that doesn't have one. Probably Rhode Island, actually. I don't think Rhode Island has any IPR clinics, but there, but Massachusetts is not too close, not too far away. Uh, there's uh, there's one in Randolph, Massachusetts, for example. So it's not too far away from Boston or Rhode Island. But yeah, I mean, there it's really relatively well diffused, but most of the places are mom and pop shops. So they're not, they're usually single facilities that were opened by somebody who really cares about hyperbaric therapy, that's very passionate about it. And they tend to be relatively small, but there are some new companies that are, that are developing. There's one on the West coast uh, that is getting relatively bigger. They're opening up some more locations called um, holistic hyperbarics. And then on the East coast, there's a six clinic facility group that is called Hyperbaric Medical Solutions, which I do consult with regularly. Actually, I consult with both of them. So, I mean, I think over time, we're seeing more and more independent providers, hyperbaric therapy that are you doing both, that are taking insurance and also doing off-label work. And, you know, my role overall, Rich, is to be a consultant to, to, uh, to patients that are interested in hyperbaric therapy across the world. So I talk to people across the world about hyperbaric therapy, help develop protocols for them, and then coordinate with their local facilities or help them get chambers if that's what's required. And I also work with clinics individually in the sense of helping running, helping with their, uh, with their protocols and integrations and how they're going to work with their particular client base as well. So, and then I also, I'm working on various technologies inside of the hyperbaric space to make it better as best I can as well. Is it accepted by mainstream medicine or is it still relegated to alternative therapies? How, how is the acceptance level? So on a scale of one to 10, I would probably give it a five. Um, and that's mostly because the indications that we have in the, in the acute setting for hyperbaric therapy. If you're an acute care doctor and you've seen what hyperbaric therapy to do, it can do, there's really no question that this is a fantastic healing technology. However, there are these indications that are outside of medical insurance that they're not, a, that are very not accepted by mainstream providers at this time. So I like to say that I get to talk out of both both sides of my mouth though, because I'm a conventional doc trained that way. So I can talk to the conventional docs and give them a feeling of what we're doing. And, you know, I was speaking to somebody today earlier with a, a child with an anoxic brain injury uh, relative related to an infection when the doctors said that the patient would never be off a feeding tube, would never be able to track or listen or hear. And then hyperbaric therapy is the main modality that they've used. And now this, she's doing much better. She's eating herself, she's responding, et cetera. So, and then the, the doctors are apologizing that they said to this family that this person, this baby would never, this young kid would never walk again or actually, or never speak again or never come off a feeding tube. So these are, these are very common experiences. And so over time, Rich, over the last five or so years, I've seen a significant shift in the medical community when it comes down to hyperbaric therapy, but it has to be spoken about like from a very specific angle, which is, I think, a several, but I think one of them is that we have a lot of great data. This is a wound healing technology. Why aren't we using it more for things that are wound? I guess, yeah, talking about it in terms of, well, clinical outcomes and indications and things like that would be, you know, more traditional doctor speech, so they'd be more accepting. Right. And I guess the people that say it's a cure-all for everything would be, would repulse those people. Of course. Yeah. Sense. When you when you start saying that, and that's why I'm very clear with a lot of people that I work with and then the clinics that I work with as well is that you just don't put everybody in the chamber. That's not what we do. What we do is understand that it's not, you know, if hyperbaric therapy, it will be helpful for you. It's really just when is the best because everybody can benefit at some point, but when are they going to benefit the most from it? That's what's most important to figure out. And so if we can do that more as a, as a therapy, as a, as a practice, I think we'd be doing better for patients and more and more of my client, my practitioner colleagues are, 
are, are signing on to that idea. I almost gave a lecture last year and I was going to title it, please don't put them in the chamber. This is going to be a, a lecture to my fellow hyperbaric clinicians because the idea, as I've stated several times, is that really if you have time, hyperbaric therapy right away may not be the best idea. It might be better to try to optimize at least in parallel, if not if, if done prior to getting into the chamber. Um, all right. So Scott, what's the best way for people to find out more and to find a practitioner and a, and a clinic near them if they want help? So yeah, thanks Rich for having me. I, I mean, the best way to get a hold of me is I have a website. It's called integrativehbot.com. So integrative hyperbaric oxygen therapy with the initials HBOT. So integrative HBOT. You can also just Google me or DuckDuckGo or Brave Me or whatever browser you use, and you can find me on various podcasts and talking about the things that I do inside the hyperbaric space. And I consult with people, educate people, and advocate for hyperbaric therapy across the world. So I have a practice that specifically does that and helps coordinate with local facilities. If you're looking for a place near you, you can just do the same thing. You can kind of search for what's around and find a hyperbaric clinic that's near you and see if you can talk to the providers about hyperbaric therapy and see if they can help you. That's another option as well. And you'll find different types of clinics out there. You'll find medical grade clinics with chambers that go to deep pressures, and you'll find uh, mild unit clinics that are spas or, or massage therapists or others that have them as well. So you kind of have to know what you're looking for. So I would recommend being a little bit educated as far as understanding what your reason for hyperbaric therapy is, and then kind of doing some research there. I also did an article for, uh, it's kind of a lay article. Uh, it was for Ben Greenfield's blog. He's a biohacker, optimal performer guy. If you look up that article as well, I do, I think I, I did my best at least to try to give a good rundown of uh, the various physiologic understanding of hyperbaric therapy that we've been discussing today, indications and uh, the protocols aren't on there because that's kind of more specific to each person, but overall that might be a good place for people to start as well. Very good. Well, Scott, thank you for coming on the podcast and it's good that you're doing this. It uh, sounds like a, uh, an effective and important therapy for a lot of conditions. So thank you. My pleasure, Rish. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.